because they don't necessarily have an appropriate understanding of what greatness actually is. I think Gladwell is on to something. If you want to actually master something and be great at it, then you need to put in copious amounts of disciplined training. I mean, maybe after a thousand hours of practice, you might be decent enough to play the guitar and impress a few people. You may be relatively good at, at one thing after playing or, or practicing that thing for a, a few years. But if you want to be actually great at something, you need to have an extended pursuit towards mastery of that thing. So whether it's a great piano player that you're striving to be, whether you're striving to be a great painter or a linguist or an athlete, you need to dedicate your life to that specific discipline. Well, as we read through the pages of Scripture, we actually see that our pursuit of holiness is similar. Over and over again, we are called to pursue holiness. We're called to be like God. And we have to recognize that we don't just stumble upon a state of holiness. It's not as though one day haphazardly we just so happen to become holy. This is a lifelong process. It takes dedication. It consists of intense day in and day out training regimens. In fact, no matter how hard we strive, we are never actually going to arrive at perfect holiness. In the same way that no matter how long you practice, you will never be a perfect piano player, you will never be perfectly holy. And so we must train to grow in our holiness. We need to, to train, and, and in fact, we need God to instruct us and to teach us how we are to be like him which is exactly what we see in our passage. Here we see that God trains his church and disciplines his church so that the people of his body might become holy. Here in chapter 12 of Hebrews, we see that God will place us in trying circumstances at times, in difficult circumstances at, in at times, in order to teach us and train us how to be holy. So I want to begin just by reading our passage. We're in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verses 3 through 17. Verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are actually illegitimate children and are not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and, and we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. As we begin in verse 4, we get some insight into the situation that the Hebrews were faced with. Remember, they were facing severe persecution. Here we see they were facing persecution, but it was not to the point of death. As verse 4 says, they had not yet shed blood for Christ. But that does not mean their persecution was not significant or not severe. Remember in chapter 10, verse 34, we read there about their persecution. Their, their goods and their possessions were being plundered, plundered by their enemies. So there was a severe level of persecution. And as we keep reading, we see that the author of Hebrews looked at this situation taking place among the Hebrews, and he came to a pretty interesting conclusion. Here we see that the author of Hebrews concluded that God was disciplining his church through this persecution. Look at verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises everyone or every son whom he receives. Hebrews is saying here that God is disciplining the members of this church when he allows them to be shamed. When he allows them to be beaten and scorned. God was disciplining his church when their property was plundered. Here in verses 5 and 6, we see that God chooses to do this. He chose to discipline this church because he was treating them as children. In fact, in verse 8, we read that every follower of Christ will, at one level or another, experience God's discipline. It's actually a mark of being a child of God. If you were left without discipline, verse 8 says, in which we all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, anybody who calls on the name of Christ experiences God's discipline. But this does lead us to a pretty important question. What in the world is God's discipline? What does it mean for God to discipline his church? Why would he do this? This is essential for us to ask. 
right? Does God's discipline mean that whenever we experience anything challenging in our lives, it's proof that we are walking in some sort of blatant and open sin? Should we say that God's discipline is the same thing as God's punishment? What does it mean, actually, that God is disciplining this church? Why is he doing it? Well, let's begin by making an important distinction. God's discipline is not the same thing as God's punishment poured out against sin. It's essential that we understand this. When you are going through a difficult season of life, you may be tempted into to thinking to yourself, what sin of mine is causing this to happen to me? Like, what did I do to bring this upon myself? What did I do to cause God to discipline me? You see, God's discipline is different than a father's discipline. An earthly parent disciplines in response to a child's disobedience, right? It's, it's usually a one-for-one one transaction. So when my son Theo gets angry because he's not getting what he wants and he bites me, right, I discipline him for biting me, right? It's a one-to-one transaction. He needs to learn that that's not appropriate, right? You can't do that. That's not allowed. But that's not necessarily the case with God. Remember, the Hebrews were being persecuted. In other words, they were being disciplined by God as a result of faithfully proclaiming Christ to a hostile culture. So it was not their disobedience that was leading to this persecution. It was their obedience leading to this persecution. To put it another way, their disobedience was not leading to God's discipline. It was actually the opposite. Their obedience was doing this. Discipline is not the same as punishment. In fact, when you do, do a study of the word discipline, it actually can also mean to train or to teach someone something. When, a, when God disciplines his people, he is actually training them and teaching them to be holy. So here's the definition. God disciplines when he trains his people to be holy often by sovereignly placing them in specific situations. Let me put it another way. God disciplines when he uses situations to sanctify his church. God will place you in a particular moment or place you in a specific situation that's trying or challenging in order to sanctify you and make you holy. He's training you. We actually see this in verse 7. We endure in order to be disciplined. When we persevere through trials and difficulties, we are learning discipline in that moment. In other words, we are, we are being trained. We are being taught. God is divinely intending to place us in these situations so that we might learn. Remember Job in the Old Testament who went through horrendous trials and sufferings the end of the book, what happens? God teaches Job. God makes Job holy through that situation. And God does the same thing with us. He allows us to go through difficult trials in order to train us. 
He sovereignly ordains that we go through difficult seasons of life so that we may grow. He allows us to go through seasons of doubt. He allows us to go through seasons of loneliness. Seasons of heartache. Seasons of depression. Seasons of hurt and of pain and of tears. And he does this so that we might grow in our holiness. Notice the purpose of God's discipline. It's highlighted in verses 9 through 11. Look at verse 10. For they, that is earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, our heavenly father, he disciplines us for our good. And here's the purpose, so that we may share in his holiness. That's the goal. He disciplines us so that we can share in his holiness. You see, the purpose of God's discipline is laid out right here. He puts us in times of trial that we might become holy, so that we might share in his likeness. And this is how discipline works in almost every area of life. By going through difficult seasons, we are trained to be better at that specific thing. Right? We discipline our bodies by going, going out and doing an extra sprint after practice in order to grow faster and last longer. Right? We study for that extra hour even when we are tired so that we may be able to to think better and reason better through a specific topic. We practice piano for that extra 30 minutes after the lesson is finished so that we might cement what we have learned into our minds. It's not as though that, that training is comfortable or easy, but it is necessary. The same can be said of our pursuit of holiness. We must go through times of difficulty and trials in order to grow. And here's what we need to recognize is that God's discipline, it has a positive outlook. It has a positive orientation. God is not disciplining us to smite us. Discipline produces character in us. Verse 11 says that even though God's discipline may seem painful for a moment, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We need to keep that in mind as we face trials. Because in our sufferings and in our loneliness and in our waiting, God is teaching us. When we are battling depression or sadness or hurt or pain, God is actually training us through that. In fact, at times God actually calls us to sacrifice our comfort. He calls us to sacrifice our pleasures or our happiness even for the sake of holiness. But there's a point in all of this. There's actually a purpose in all of this. God is for us. He he is doing this for our good. He is using these times to make us like himself. So let's continue into verses 12 through 17. Before we, we dive in there, I, I want to point out how these two halves of our passage relate. 
when we move from the first half of this section to the second half of this section, it, it can seem kind of abrupt. All of a sudden, the topic changes. And if you're like me, you want to know how these passages relate. Why is it that he went from focusing on God's discipline to the fact that we need to pursue peace with everyone and pursue holiness? How do these two passages relate? Here's how. In the first half of the chapter, book of Hebrews is, is referencing this idea, this concept that God disciplines us for our good. Right? The author of Hebrews wants us to get that simple idea. That's just an idea that he's trying to, to drill into us. But in the last half of this, this section, these last few verses of our passage, uh, Hebrews gets very specific. Here's how you endure well in the midst of your suffering. Here's how you endure in the face of trials. Here's what this actually looks like. I also want to point out that in verses 4 through 11, Hebrews emphasizes that enduring God's discipline results in the peaceful fruit of righteousness and holiness. Well, when we go to this next section, what is he focusing on? He's focusing on us pursuing peace and holiness and showing us how to do that. So the transition between these two sections begins in verse 12, where he begins with the word, therefore. He wants us to understand that we need to draw a conclusion. Because God is disciplining us and, and calling us to partake in his holiness, here's how we ought to do this. So the first thing that we need to do is found in verses 12 and 13. If we are going to endure well as we endure God's discipline, we need to endure with the right attitude, the right perspective. Because God disciplines us for our good, we ought to go through those situations with the right attitude and the right perspective about God's discipline. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak, your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. In other words, take the frown off your face. Quit slouching as though the world is over. We ought to have a joyful demeanor even in our suffering and in our trials because we know that through these situations, God is making us like his son. So when we face a season of intense discipline, we can actually rest assured that God is at work. This is why we lift up our drooping hands. This is why we strengthen our weak knees. Because we can have a positive outlook in our suffering. We know that ultimately God is bringing about our healing. Turn with me to James 1. It's just a couple pages to the right of Hebrews. In James 1... Verse 2 through 4, here's what we read. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Notice what James is saying there. We ought to face trials and temptations with joy. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to be perfect and complete? Do you want to be lacking in nothing? Well, God has decreed that trials and suffering are one of the avenues towards holiness. God has decreed that he will place us in times of difficulty in order to produce within us the fruit of righteousness and holiness. I mean, oddly enough, James is calling us to actually walk into these situations with joy and and determination. Determination because we know that through this we are going to become holy and joy because we know that through this God is making us like himself. He's doing a good work in us. Romans 5 essentially says the same exact thing. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. We rejoice. We rejoice. I mean, hear what Paul is saying. We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. God has placed us in situations intended to produce holiness within us. Sometimes we face sufferings and trials. And yet we are to look at those situations with rejoicing. That is counterintuitive. And yet we can lift up our drooping hands. We can strengthen our weary knees, knowing that we are not defeated by our trials. It's just the opposite. We are not defeated when we suffer. Just the opposite. We are not defeated when we are faced with jail time for proclaiming Christ. It's just the opposite. God has not used these situations to bring about our defeat. Instead, he's bringing about our holiness. These situations are for our good. God intends our good. So if we have to endure discipline, if we are going to endure discipline well, the first step we need to take is to make sure that our attitude and our perspective is right. We need to recognize God is at work. Second, if we want to endure God's discipline well, we need to strive to attain peace with everyone. As we go through times of of trial and and difficulty and persecution, we need to strive for peace with everyone. We see this specifically in verse 14. So let's focus on the first half of this verse. Chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Think about this for a moment. This church was being persecuted by others. This church was being persecuted by the surrounding culture and yet to a church facing persecution the author of Hebrews is saying be at peace with everyone. As those who belong to the kingdom of God we are actually called to be a a radical mechanism for peace with all men. Matthew 5 9 the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 39, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, 
Turn to him the other also. And now I know we love to justify our anger and we know we love to justify our, 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 our fighting back against our enemies. But let's just hear what, what Jesus is saying here. So far as it depends on you, be devoted to peacemaking. This is important. We need to recognize that we can only be peacemakers as far as it depends on us, right? You cannot control the way someone else responds. You cannot force other people to reply kindly when you pursue peace with them. As far as it depends on you, you must pursue peace though. And so this may be a situation where someone does a wrong against your family member and instead of seeking retribution for yourself, instead of you seeking to bring judgment upon that person's head, as Romans 12 says, bless that person. Bless them when you are persecuted. Here's a really practical, kind of goofy example of what this is, may look like. I like to surf, and um, something you might not know about surfers is that many surfers are very selfish, they're territorial, they're rude, and they get angry. You typically think of like people as super laid back if they're like a surfer, right? That's, that's what stereotypically comes to mind. And yet when you're out in the water with other people who are surfing, a lot of times people can essentially just be jerks. Here's why. When there are a lot of people in the water and like a wave is coming in, you have like 10 people all paddling for one, for one wave. And what happens is that there ends up being this heated argument. Whose wave was that? I'm not kidding, right? People will get in heated arguments over this. It's inevitable. And, and to state the obvious, right, no human owns that wave, right? That, that's, that's not a thing. You don't own that property. And yet there, there is such a thing as surf etiquette. And people get frustrated when you break those, those rules. And what happens is if you like cut someone off is the, the term, people get mad. So my goal personally is when I break a specific rule, I want to make it my, my goal to make peace as far as I can. Right, if, if, if I cut someone off or get in someone's way, right, I'm going to apologize to that guy. And then if another wave comes, even if surf etiquette rules, like it's my wave coming in, I'll, okay, go ahead, right? I cut you off on the last wave. Even if I have like the right of way, as, as you can put it. But I cannot actually control the way that person's gonna respond. I simply can't, right? The, it's kind of typical that like these guys out in the water, they they want to like make an example out of you. And so they want to shame you. I've thankfully haven't had this happen to me, but you'll see guys just like laying into somebody, just top of their lungs. Every, every other word is the F-bomb, right? And they're, they're laying into this guy even after the guy apologized. And you're just kind of sitting there watching like, what is wrong with these people? At the end of the day though, all you can do is seek peace. If he's not going to respond well, then that's out of my control. And the same way for many of you, if you are seeking peace with someone else, all you can do is, is give your apology, seek to make amends, and if that person's not willing to reconcile, that's on them. 
It's not on you. So one way to seek holiness in the midst of trials is to, is to make peace with other people. Right? And this makes sense to a church facing persecution. Right? This is a lot worse than people out on the water you know, doing their recreation, yelling at each other. Right? These people, their, their property is being plundered. And what it would mean to that individual for you to seek peace with that person is pretty profound. Right? It's no wonder that many of, many of the prison guards that Paul interacted with while he was in prison ended up coming to the Lord. Like we read about that in some of his letters where he's, he's, he's saying many of the, the centurions and many of the prisoners, the, the guards, greet you as well in the Lord. Right? God used Paul's situation as he's being persecuted, as he, he's being dealt a, a horrible hand in prison, He's seeking peace with these people and they're turning to the Lord. God uses, uses our, our uh, pursuit of peace for his own good. Third, if you want to endure trials well for the sake of holiness, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up in your heart. We find this in verse 15. So 12, 15, here's what we read. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So I want to focus on the second half of the verse here. Here, the author of Hebrews is actually referencing Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 through 19. Right, when you first read this, you might think what he means is like, don't be bitter towards other people. Don't be angry at other people. But he's actually quoting Deuteronomy, and that's not the, the intended meeting once you read Deuteronomy 29. So let me read Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 and 19, so that we know what the author of Hebrews is getting at here. Verse 18. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root, of, a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I have walked in the stubbornness of my heart. So Hebrews is drawing from this this phrase, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. When you look at the original language here, Paul is actually drawing directly from Deuteronomy. And if you look at, if you have an ESV at least, uh, and an NASB, you'll see there's a cross-reference here from Hebrews to Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy warns that there will be some who grow proud and arrogant. They decide to disobey God and worship idols while thinking that they have done nothing wrong. It's the person who claims to know God but goes about life indulging in the sins of this world without any concern. This is the person who says, I'm going to be just fine even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. That's the type of person Hebrews is talking about. 
when trials come, this person has no ability to persevere in holiness. When temptations arise, this person falls into them without the slightest bit of resistance. When trials come, they fold immediately under the pressure without a sense of concern. When the church is full of these types of people, let me assure you that it corrupts. This sort of attitude will cause all sorts of problems both inside the church and outside the walls of the church. I don't know if you're paying attention to the headlines right now, but this is exactly what's happening in the Catholic Church. Even as we speak, there are priests and there are leaders throughout the, the, the diocese here in, in America who have been accused of heinous sexual immorality. Some of these things, I, I, you can't even repeat them. It's hard to read when you read about some of these things that have come out over the last couple of weeks. And here's what's so awful, is that the church knowingly covered this up and they pretended as though it wasn't even happening. They lied to the press and to police officers when accusations came up. They began to brush it under the rug. And these so-called leaders in the church had this exact attitude. We will be safe even though we walk in the stubbornness of our hearts. And now their rebellion is coming out. And those inside the Catholic Church are thinking about leaving. Those outside of the Catholic Church, their, their taste towards that has grown even more bitter. And you know, this is going to affect us too, will it not? This is happening in the Catholic Church and many out, outside the walls of the church do not know the difference between the Catholic Church and an evangelical church. A church is a church and I just hear that these people are corrupt and that these wicked men are sleeping with children. That's what I hear about. You know, I still hear stories here. It's been years since this happened, but I still hear stories from some of you about a former high school pastor here at Golden Hills. Years ago, I don't know if you knew this, but we had a high school pastor who cheated on his wife with his intern. And the two of them left California and went to Hawaii. And so we had a couple of pastors track them down and, and bring them back. And maybe you, maybe you remember that. But let me just tell you, those sorts of situations, they affect the church and they affect the community. People left this church in droves after that happened. And people in the community wanted nothing to do with Golden Hills. You see, sin must be dealt with. Remove the bitter root by ripping it out from the soil of your heart before it begins to affect the body of Christ. Right? These sorts of sins are a poison. They're a disease. And these sorts of things must be dealt with before they corrupt the church. And at times, this even means that discipline has to take place. God will discipline Certainly, this is an instance where God does discipline directly for sin, and sometimes God disciplines for sin through his church. 
Right? We read this in Matthew 18. At times the, ch- the church are to publicly remove people from their church because of heinous and, and public sins. You see, as a church, we must take these things seriously. We need to address these realities. We can't pretend they are not happening in our midst. And we begin doing this by first addressing our own hearts, weeding out the roots of bitterness. And then we do this by holding one another accountable. Next, we see that if we want to endure trials for the purpose of holiness, we need to avoid the example of Esau. Verses 16 and 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward he had desired to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau functions in the opposite way when compared to those that we read about in Hebrews 11. Instead of being an example for us to follow, Esau is an example for us to avoid. So in case you don't remember, Esau is a grandson to Abraham. Abraham's son is Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the significance here is that Esau was the older brother. He was supposed to carry on the blessing of God that was given to Abraham and Isaac. And yet he was ungodly. First off, we see his ungodliness in that he was sexually immoral. In chapter 26 of Genesis, we read that he married two Hittite women. First off, as, as a child of God's promise, he was prohibited from marrying a Hittite. And then to make things even worse, he decided to marry two. So let me just tell you, if you as a Christian are willing to date and marry someone who does not follow Christ, simply because that person is attractive, you are engaging in a form of sexual immorality. You are allowing your sexual desire to override what really matters, right? Is that person actually helping you to pursue Christ? If the only reason you're attracted to that person is because of the beauty, then you cannot cave into that because that is a form of sexual immorality according to what we see here in Hebrews. And this means you might have to break off that relationship for the sake of holiness. You might have to endure your singleness and loneliness for the sake of holiness. People say, God, God wants me to be happy though. Actually, God might be calling you to remain faithful in your unhappiness so that you can become holy. Do not be like Esau by pursuing sexual immorality. Esau also served as a negative example because he did not endure in obedience when he was faced with a trial. A trial. Scare quotes intended. Genesis 25, we read about this story where Esau was unwilling to forego a single meal for the sake of obedience. 
right? That was the trial that Esau was facing. I'm hungry. I need something to eat. And he decided to sell his birthright for a single meal. Now, that might not sound like that heinous of a sin. That might not sound all that bad. It's a birthright. But this was significant. This is Abraham's grandson. He had the responsibility to carry on God's blessing for the people of God. He was to be a forefather of the faith, and yet he caved over a single meal. He decided to barter away the promises of God for some soup. And then at the end of the chapter, in Genesis 25, we see that by the end of his life, he despised his birthright. How easily we can cave to the temptations and trials of this world. We are far too easily tempted away from the grace of God. Now I want to point out that this decision that Esau made was ultimately a decision to abandon God. Right? He was abandoning God when he made this decision to sell his birthright. And sometimes we do face significant situations like this, where we are faced with a situation. I need to choose between God and Christ, and on the other side, I, need, I can choose the world, right? Do I choose Christ or do I choose the world? And in that moment, you need to decide, am I going to choose sin or am I going to pursue Christ and pursue holiness? But I get it. Typically, we don't face those sorts of choices where it's like, all right, this is it. This choice is going to dictate my fate forever. Am I going to follow Christ or not? Often, we're not faced with this this significant moment. Usually, it's a slow fade, right? It's it's steady decision-making. It's the day-by-day decisions that we make. It's those decisions that seem small and insignificant in the moment where we begin to allow this bitter root take hold in our hearts like Esau, right? It's just one click. It's just one kiss. It's just one purchase. It's just one glance. It's just one more drink. It's just one puff. It's just one text message. It's just one word. It's just one joke, and when you begin to allow those, those, those minute decisions steer you away from holiness, that is when sin slips into these minor cracks that seem so small at the beginning. But as that root grows, that crack turns into a crevasse. And eventually that crevasse turns into a chasm and your heart is divided. We need to grasp a hold of this reality so that we can uproot the bitterness, that strain of poison that seeps into our hearts. So before we close, I want us to look back at verses 14 and 15. Here we read about the importance of holiness. I kind of breezed over this earlier, intentionally. So now we're going to look at it because here we see the weightiness of this passage. Here we read about the weightiness of pursuing holiness. 
verse 14. Notice that phrase. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Then in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. These are staggering words. Hebrews is saying that holiness is essential. It's essential. I mean, this is similar to Christ's words in Matthew 5, 8 from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I mean, this isn't a call to sinlessness. The point here is is not that we as the people of God need to be perfect, but this is certainly no less than a call to pursue Christ throughout the course of our lives. We are called to seek God. We are called to be like him and to strive for holiness. You see, the opposite of apostasy, the opposite of falling away from God, is not resisting apostasy. No, a pursuit of holiness is the opposite of apostasy. Throughout the book of Hebrews, this is why we have seen over and over again warnings directed at the church calling the church to resist the temptation of apostasy by pursuing Christ. This is how we do it. This is how we resist the temptations of abandoning Jesus, by striving to be like God, by striving to live like Christ. The best way to abandon sin and resist sin is by moving forward in your pursuit of holiness. Right? This is a war that we are in, and we are not going to win this war by maintaining the battleground. No, the way we win this war is by moving forward, by aggressively pursuing our enemy. That's the way this war is won. That's the tactical strategy here. You can't just resist apostasy. You must pursue Christ. We resist falling away from Christ by pursuing holiness. Strive to seek Christ. Let's pray. God, we know that these are things that we can't produce in our hearts. We can't produce this sort of perseverance and endurance. Please, God, grant us the strength and the faith that we need to remain faithful to you.